reading from two passages this morning. The first is Acts 2, 42 through 47. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all the believers were together and had all things in common, and they would sell their property and possessions and share with them all to the extent that anyone had need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The second passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 26. What is the outcome then, brothers and sisters? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. All things are to be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it must be by two or at the most three, and each one in turn, and one is to interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he is to keep silent in church and have him speak to himself and to God. Have two or three prophets speak and have the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, then the first one is to keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. Or was it from you that the word of God first went out? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us without guidance. Um, we are not blind as to how we are to worship together. Uh, you have provided uh, teachings in your word about how your people did these things from the beginning. Lord, uh, what, is, what is necessary, uh, what is acceptable and proper in your eyes. Lord, we pray that uh, we would be as a church continually conformed to these things. Lord, desiring always to serve you in the way that most pleases you. We pray that you would bless this message, uh, bless us who hear it, Lord. And just cause us to leave today praising you more. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. This is our agenda this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking about the open meeting, and uh, I'm going to do a little introduction, some personal thoughts, and then we're going to sort of level set with the description of the open meeting. We're going to look at a couple of documents, and then spend a lot of time, I hope, on the Holy Spirit and worship, because that's really the heart of what I want to kind of focus on this morning, as it is the heart of the meeting. Uh, there will be a little bit of administrative stuff around the meeting itself and how it should work, and then hopefully we have some time where I can give you a little information about where this comes from. Uh, even the text that Nathan read was about Acts 2, so we know that's where it started, but a lot happened between the early church and when this style of worship came back into, into use. And it's interesting history and it's worth talking about. And then at the end, I'm gonna give you my hot sports opinions, uh, further thoughts or just my feelings about the, the service and some things that I think uh, you should consider. So why this message? Why are we even talking about the open meeting? We do this every week, right? And so in that sense, it's like, what, what is there to talk about? Well, it's really important because it's one of our distinctives at CBC, and it's one of our most unusual distinctives, and the elders think that we should teach our distinctives. Uh, it's worth knowing why and how and where these things came from. I also believe it's important for everyone in the body to know a lot about why we do what we do in worship. Uh, for the men who participate, we want them to know how to participate well, so it's worth teaching for that reason. For everyone, we need to know how to properly evaluate the worship service. We should have thoughts about how it goes, and we want you to know how it's supposed to go so that you can evaluate. And then for everyone also, we want you to properly appreciate this style of worship. 
you'll very quickly figure out I'm a huge fan of this. Uh, this is somewhat rare, but I think it's wonderful, and we want you to appreciate it and support it and nurture this practice uh, week by week. So I also should say in the outset that Tom did two excellent messages in 1 Corinthians 14 back in September of 21, so about two years ago, and they're wonderful. They're on our church podcast. They're on YouTube. I encourage you to go and, and listen to those again if you missed them the first time or just re-listen to them. They're excellent. They're exegetical, and you will get a lot more from the text in 1 Corinthians 14 than you will from me today. My treatment is going to be more topical, but Tom did a fantastic job there, and I encourage you to go check it out. Okay, so I feel like I've got a fair amount of experience with the worship service here. Um, I've been in this body 32 years. And in 32 years, even kind of giving some travel time, I've probably attended the worship service over 1,500 times. Now, that sounds like a big number, and I'm not trying to brag because some of you have been here longer. Those of you that were here since the beginning in 1976, you've sat through somewhere around 2,300 worship services. And it's profound to me that not any two of those worship services over those 2,300 were repeats. This style of worship is very interesting. When we walk in the door on Sunday morning, we don't know what will happen, right? We don't know who will speak. We don't know what they will say. We don't know what the Spirit will do with this service. Even the men who will eventually get up and lead usually don't really know what they're going to say either. It's, it's a complete open service. That's what we mean by the open service. And what we claim and what we want is for the Holy Spirit to direct that worship. That is the way that it works well. And that's going to be a focus this morning. When we say the Spirit is leading our worship, that's not a platitude. We're not just sort of saying that, like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? We mean that. And I think by the end of the message, I hope I've proven that to you. So, I'd like to start with where I came in. I first got here, here meaning the building over on Abrams Road, in 1982. I was 14 years old, and the open service was very interesting to me as a 14-year-old boy. I didn't understand it. I didn't know what the rules were. I didn't get the, you know, the free-form part of it. But what I did get was I got certain men sharing in the open service spoke to me, really spoke to me. I'm going to use a couple examples. I could give you a lot. I'm going to use two. One of my favorites, one of my personal favorites from my teenage years was Manuel Edling. Some of you have been around long enough to know and remember Manuel Edling. It probably didn't hurt that he reminded me of my grandfather, my mom's father, who was a very godly man. But Manuel was a very gentle, very warm person, and he would get up at an appropriate frequency in the worship service, and he would share. And when he did, it wasn't like someone talking about Jesus. It was like somebody telling you about the, the Jesus that he knew day by day and loved. It was captivating. Here's another example, completely different guy. And uh, Gail, I'm going to talk about your late husband. Bill Humphreys was another one of my favorites. Bill was completely different than Manuel Edling, right? Not at all the same. Bill was powerfully built. He was a man's man, military background. I believe he was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Am I getting that right, Gail? Bill spoke in short declarative sentences, right? And I've heard people, including some of my fellow elders, say that if there's ever going to be a real fight, I'd love to have Bill in my corner. That's the kind of guy Bill was, right? Now, when Bill got up, he didn't lay off his personality. He was still Bill. All those things were still true about him when he was speaking. And yet, Bill had this almost physical submission that would come over him when he talked about the Lord. He recognized what the Lord had done for him. And you could see it, you could hear it. I have memories of Bill's lip quivering sometimes. And it was amazing what happened when Bill got out to talk about the Lord. So two very different guys, but they're leading in worship, they are sharing from their experiences, and it was compelling to me as a teenager. It, that worship service and many other men, including some that are still in the room here, spoke to me. I zeroed in on some men, and some men I didn't. Like, I was a teenager, right? So some guys I would completely ignore. 
But what that did for me going through those years in this church was it completely changed my expectations for male spiritual leadership. This is really where that was formed for me. So the expectation that men should know the scriptures came from here for me, that they should be um, able to teach the scriptures, that they should be willing to get up and publicly lead in worship. That's a, that's a tough thing. I mean, John talked about that this morning, right? That's a, that's a high bar. And yet, even though it's a little scary, the men here, most of the men in this body then, as well as today, get up and lead. That makes it something that's more doable, right? That, that kind of makes it more accessible. And I, it had a huge impact on me growing up in this church. So anyway, I could talk a lot longer about my experience, but that's really not what I'm here for. I want to go to some documents, and let's define what we're talking about in this uh, open meeting concept. So what is the open meeting? Well, I'm going to go to our statement of faith. Uh, the main part, all the doctrinal stuff, are those positions from the scriptures that we stand on, that we don't change. But there's sort of a back door on the statement of faith, and that's this addendum. So if you have one or you get one out of the, the little rack on the wall down there by the, by the door, um, you'll see this addendum. And these are the things that are matters of conviction. We believe from the scriptures, the elders believe from the scriptures, that we should be doing these things. And we recognize that other people believe other things, and they do it differently than we do. That's okay. It's not a point of doctrine. But we're convinced that this is the right thing to do. Um, I should have brought one of those up here with me. I'm going to read it off my little screen here. Um, so the worship service section is at the bottom of the addendum there. We have an open worship service on Sundays where the entire congregation is actively involved in the worship of God. Men of our body are free to lead us in worship through a praise, a psalm, a hymn, a teaching, an exhortation, or a prayer as led by the Holy Spirit. And I highlighted that because that's really important, as led by the Holy Spirit. And according to the guidelines of the scriptures, hmm, two different things in that sentence. Being led by the Spirit does not preclude individual preparation, and in any case, participation should be orderly, reverent, honoring to God, and edifying to the body. Periods of silence, which may occur during this service, should be viewed as opportunities for individual silent worship and meditation on our Lord. So unpacking it and just kind of laying it out in bullet form, that's what this says. So active participation, and right there you might be saying, what does that mean, right? Because a handful of men will get up and lead on Sunday morning. Well, what about the rest of the men? What about the women? What about the young people? Are they not, how are they actively participating? If you think about it, you are, right? You are hearing teaching, you are singing, you are praying. By not getting up, you're also participating in a, in a way. But it is a very active worship service. It's not a spectator uh, type service. And our men lead by offering those different things, praises, songs, exhortations, etc., being led by the Spirit, and also following Scripture. So there's a little bit of a tension there. We could have like, hey, let's all be led by the Spirit and get up and do whatever we want. Okay, what would that look like? It would probably be disorderly. And so doing it according to the Scriptures is really important. That creates uh, the structure for that meeting to work well and to be edifying to one another and to be honoring to the Lord. And then the last thing in that description about silence, this is kind of the, the, the term pops into my head. It's, it's a feature, not a bug. There will be some periods of silence, and that's okay. We can get uncomfortable. And I'll tell you, the guy that is really uncomfortable in the room is when you open and you sit down, and then there's an extended period of silence, right? <laughs> that's the thing where the, the seconds just kind of click by. It feels like an eternity. However, I will say, and I've, been a, I've had that happen to me before, and it wasn't too bad for you this morning, John, but sometimes the best openings have the longest period of silence. Sometimes I've noticed it takes a little while for the Holy Spirit to work it out with men to prepare them to say what needs to be said. So it doesn't correlate with quality, but yeah, it can be nerve-wracking. Okay, let's keep going. I'm not going to read the next two, but there is a little flap in our bulletin. It says for our visitors with a nice description of the service and what we do. The thing that that adds to what I've already done is that that will say specifically that only the opener is planned. You know, that first guy, John, this morning, he got up, he had a plan, he had a theme, he set that for us. Everybody else that gets up before the opener gets back up to close down the meeting, that is all unplanned, as it were. So that's what that adds. And that's a useful thing. When you have a visitor, you can point them to this in the bulletin. That's, it's handy. 
Our website also has a description. I'm not going to really talk about that, but people that look at us as a church, they'll find a description of this service on the website. So these things are important. Okay, I want to talk about the Holy Spirit and worship. I've already said that you know we are trying to be a New Testament principle-based church. That's why Nathan read that passage from uh, Acts chapter 2. And then we are also talking about this meeting being led by the Holy Spirit. So we should consider what the Holy Spirit uh, does, what is his role, and how does that fit into worship. I'm going to start early in the Gospels in the fourth chapter of, of John. It's a familiar passage. It's Jesus visiting with a Samaritan woman, woman at the well. You know, it's that story. And I'm just going to read a quote from Jesus, and we're going to talk about the Spirit in worship. So Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. If I had more time, we might kind of look back to the Old Testament at worship and how things are changing at this point in time. But don't miss the point of this passage, which is there's no true worship of God without the Spirit. And likewise, there's no true worship of God without truth. Jesus puts them together. It kind of reminds me of earlier in John's epistle where Jesus is full of grace and truth, right? These things go together in Christ. Truth and the Spirit go together in worship. And sometimes it feels like there can be tension between those, but in the depth of God and his design, that tension is sort of our problem. It's not his problem. They do go together. So let's look at another passage a little bit later, also in the Gospel of John. This is the Upper Room Discourse. So this is right before Jesus goes to the cross. And I'm going to back off just a second and say, when we do our worship service, we say it all the time. It was said this morning, we seek to honor the Lord Jesus and remember him, right? We even call it our remembrance service. That's that important. Think about that as I read a couple of these verses that tell us what Jesus said to his disciples, one of his last messages to them about the role of the Holy Spirit. What will the Holy Spirit do when he comes? Because the Holy Spirit had not been given at that point. So uh, in chapter 14, verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Hmm, interesting mission, 1526. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. Did we testify about the Lord Jesus this morning in our worship service? Yeah, yeah we did. We, we endeavor to do that every week. This is part of the role of the Holy Spirit. And then this last little section. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Wow, that's, that's a powerful concept there. But the Holy Spirit's will, and one of his important roles, is to glorify Jesus and to help us know and remember him. So, pretty big role in our worship. Let's go to one more passage, and I'm going to pick up um, one of the things that Nathan read in Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to try to do this pretty quickly. Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the church, okay? Jesus is crucified. The apostles stay in Jerusalem. They're hanging around. They're waiting for the helper to come. They probably don't know what that means, but they remember that Jesus said it, and then something happens, and it happens at the very beginning of chapter 2. So first 13 verses, the day of Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. He comes with manifestations. There's a sound of a rushing wind. There are tongues of fire. People are speaking in tongues. There's a lot going on when the Holy Spirit is given. The world is changing. Jesus' prediction is coming true. The helper is there. It's incredible. People start misunderstanding that right from the beginning. And so Peter gets up. And I think it's like literally right then. Peter gets up and he preaches the gospel with spiritual power and he's preaching to those people that are in Jerusalem. It's people that live there, others that seem like they're in town from all around the world, and the Holy Spirit continues to pour out. And it says, the text says about 3,000 were added 
to the number of believers that day. So this great outpouring, people repenting, 3,000 people are being baptized. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, we, we kind of skim over this sometimes. And when you stop and think about what was it like, it, would, it must have been incredible. And then, after the day of Pentecost, we roll on into that text that Nathan read. And this is the early church. So my, my premise here is that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit continued past the day of Pentecost and animated what believers were doing. Worship was changing. Doing church was changing. It had nothing to do with what came before in the Old Testament. This was a communal, um, hospitable movement, and you see this in the text. I'm not going to read that in the interest of time, but they were meeting together. They were meeting in the temple. They were meeting in their homes. They were sharing their meals together. They were breaking bread together, and don't miss the point. That probably was a meal. It wasn't a bit of cracker and a little sip of juice, but it was being done in the format that Jesus asked them to do. They were remembering him when they were getting together and breaking bread. So our worship service, what we did here this morning, is what it's being referred to in this text with the breaking of bread. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and remember that, right? It wasn't just the Holy Spirit came to earth. He came and came into the followers, the believers in Jesus, his people, his disciples. He, it indwelled these people. And then it gushed back out in joyful worship and fellowship and giving. All of these manifestations of the Spirit were going on. So is this Holy Spirit interested in worship? You bet he is. Okay, so what are these three texts? If we just take these together, there's other things we could do, but if we just take these together, what do they really teach us? So the Spirit is necessary for true worship. The Spirit's work is to glorify and explain Christ, and the Spirit indwells believers and encourages worship. So the conclusion here is that real worship just doesn't happen apart from the Holy Spirit. You're not going to get anywhere in worship if you don't have the Holy Spirit with you. And good news, when we walk in the building on Sunday mornings, we bring him with us, right? He's in us as believers. So he is here in that sense for sure. So how does he do this work? Um, I'm going to kind of, kind of make a claim here that the Spirit works in worship the same way the Spirit works in the body in body life. I don't believe it's any different. He's working through diversity and through people. I'm going to kind of show you some things in uh, 1 Corinthians and kind of give you a reason why I think I can defend that. But then the other point, spirit truth, we've been talking about that, spirit truth. The truth part is the spirit uses the structure and the guidelines of scripture to help us worship. So let me, let me kind of flesh out one of my claims here. I really don't like the fact that we have chapters and headings in our Bibles. Right? I used to like that a lot, but the, the longer I'm alive and the more I read the scriptures, the more I think it's a problem. And so there it is. That's my personal opinion. But if you take these four chapters in 1 Corinthians, chapter 11 through 14, we silo them, just like I've got them on the screen. I did that for a reason, right? We say, okay, chapter 11 is about this, chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts, then Paul turns his attention to love, and then chapter 14, he comes back to worship. It's really not like that. Right? These things are artificial, and so we should read the scriptures and think about the scriptures, not about these added things that are not inspired. And my claim here is that Paul has a progression of thought through these four chapters that, that will explain and illuminate to us how the Holy Spirit is active in our worship. That's my claim. I hope I can pull it off. So I'm going to just fill in the, the content of these chapters and talk about it real quickly. Chapter 11 is the message on how not to worship, <laughs> okay? Corinth was a terrible place, right? And the Corinthian believers were terrible believers. They're totally dysfunctional. Their worship service was so bad that it was causing division in the church. People were getting drunk. Other people were starving, right? And it was so bad that God had disciplined this body, and some people had actually died, I mean, that's, that's actually kind of hard for us to even grasp, I think, as modern believers. But Paul says that very clearly. Some of you have fallen asleep. You're dead because of the badness of your worship. So Paul sort of addresses it a little bit in chapter 11. He says, knock it off. You know, I'm not proud of you. I won't commend you. You need to stop this. Wait for one another. I'm going to deal with more later. And Paul's probably planning to come visit and just, you know, kick some tail but what he actually does is he comes back to it. He doesn't leave the topic of bad worship. 
he starts building a theological framework that they can use to fix their worship. And he does that right away in chapter 12. So it's about spiritual gifts. And just as a reminder, spiritual gifts don't mean gifts that help us be spiritual. They are gifts that are given to us from the Spirit, right? So you could be, have the gift of administration and you could be great at spreadsheets. And I kind of like to hang out with you if you are because I dig that. <laughs> That's not inherently spiritual, but that gift can be, is given to you by the Spirit. So just kind of keep that distinction. When he teaches through there, he points out that the gifts are given to different people there's a diversity within the church and a diversity of gifts. They are given to the church and the members of the church for a reason. One is to unify the church. Much like the example he uses in chapter 12 of the human body. You've got a foot, you've got an arm, you've got a spleen. All different functions, but all connected together in one body. And so the spiritual gifts are given to do that within the church, to connect us together because we need one another's gifts. So you end up with unity, and the gifts are used to build up the church for edification. Tom made a great point in his message that the word edification uh, comes from a common uh, root with the word edifice. And edifice is like a structure, right? So edification is building up, strengthening, and building a structure. It's a really good point I hadn't heard anybody else make. So that's chapter 12. So the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts for unity and edification. And then chapter 13 is kind of a wrapper around the use of spiritual gifts. It's not a separate topic. It is a continuation of the topic. It gives the practicing spiritual gifts in love provides context to those acts of service. It makes it effective when we use our gifts. And it applies meaning and some level of permanence to exercising your gifts. The end of that chapter says, uh, you know, faith, hope, and love, the grace of these is, is love, and it remains. It is permanent. And there's some sense, I think, in which our acts of service, using our spiritual gifts, will go on through eternity because they are done in love. I don't know how that works, but that's kind of what comes to my mind. Chapter 14, you know, we had how not to worship in 11. In chapter 14, we have how to worship. And we read part of that this morning. But the gifts of, of or that are given to us for worship that are brought into that chapter. Specifically, it talks about the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And there are other gifts that apply as well. It rolls from chapter to chapter to chapter. So we take those gifts into chapter 14, we use those gifts in our worship, and the result is unity, edification, and order. It actually uses the term order. So you have disorder in chapter 11, you've got order in chapter 14. What is the difference? The Spirit is giving people things to use to build up the body and body life and also to use in worship. I'm going to show you a little table. I told you I like spreadsheets. That's kind of a dirty little secret. But um, I actually made a table because I, I noticed a pattern of language in chapter 12 and chapter 14, which I think drove home the point to me. I uh, just want to show it to you. Um, Paul speaks about spiritual gifts and also acts of worship in similar ways. So I, I don't think this is an accident. I think this is deliberate. But he points out that we are given spiritual gifts by the Spirit, and you can see the scripture references there in the table. And we also are given things to contribute by the Spirit in our worship. Each one has spiritual gifts. Each one has something to contribute in worship. And the, the language is just very similar. You know, there's, there's a variety of contributions that result in that are the result of diversity in the church. Uh, we're to um, desire the greater gifts. We're also um, to desire the greater contributions in worship. So there's this echoing going on in the language. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm in pretty good ground there. So the, the takeaway here is the Holy Spirit um, is all about worship and is necessary for worship, and it's his presence in worship that makes it glorifying to the Lord and edifying to the body, but he does that through us. So if you're in a regular church and there's one guy who's leading a worship service, it's kind of hard to pull that off with the diversity of gifts and a diversity of perspectives. We are blessed to be worshiping the way we are. Okay, so my claim here is the open meeting is body life in miniature. So we do this during the week. We are involved in one another's lives other times of week ministry groups, Bible studies, whatever. But we also do it in miniature in the open meeting where the Spirit is using the diversity of gifts and the diversity of contributions to edify one another and inform our worship. And it's, he's using diversity in the body to unify. I don't, I don't know if you 
kind of pick up on that idea. That's, that's I don't know what the, what the grammar term is for that, but it's not obvious, a little bit profound, to use diversity to unify. Most of my experience with other sort of man-made forms of diversity, it usually doesn't unify very well. Often it goes the other direction. But the Holy Spirit uses diversity of gifts and diversity in the body to unify us. Okay, so is the Spirit really here? Okay, I made a lot of claims, right? We just had a worship service this morning. Is this real? Is he really here? I'm going to go, um, this is the only text I'm going to look at in the first half of 1 Corinthians 14. Um, but this is talking about the effect on unbelievers. Same kind of message prior to this is about believers, but this is specifically talking about unbelievers that might come into the meeting. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers, and I think Tom said that ungifted men doesn't really mean they're not good at things. It means they're uninitiated. They don't know what we're doing. They just walk in off the street. If they enter, will they not say that you are mad if you're all speaking in tongues? Yeah. I actually have a little experience with that when I was a child. I'm not going to get into it, but yeah, they would think you're mad. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all because he can understand what's being said. He gets convicted he is, and he is called into account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. That's a, a powerful picture, right? Someone who doesn't know the Lord comes in, they hear the, the worship, the contributions, they can understand it because we're speaking in a real language, and that can cause him to repent and fall on his face, become a follower of Christ, and this last part is the interesting thing, declaring that God is certainly among you. Why would he declare that? He might declare, I think you're right, I think I'm a sinner. There's lots of things that you can imagine somebody in that situation saying. Why would he declare that God is certainly among you? You, you kind of get it, right? I said before that we bring the Holy Spirit in with us because he indwells us, so we know he's here for that reason. This is another piece of evidence which that person sees the Holy Spirit, right? He's hearing from the Holy Spirit. He's acknowledging as an unbeliever, the Holy Spirit is here. So yes, if this is done well, the Holy Spirit is here. That's another piece of evidence. And I'm going to give you a third piece of evidence in case you need some more convincing. And I'm going to use last week, the worship service last week is my evidence. And I could, there's a lot of examples of this. And given my 1,500 worship services, I've seen this a lot of times. But if you were here last week, did you notice what happened in the meeting? Bob Deffenbaugh opened. Bob gave a you know wonderful Bob type opening. It was uh, had a lot of elements to it, like he does. He said at one point he talked about this building, and he even said it. This is a weird analogy when he said it, but he said yeah, there's a lot of doors in this place. It's really big. There's all kinds of places you can go. Then later, totally unconnected, he mentioned Hugh Blevins, one of our former elders, and. Bob sat down. Bob did not know that those two little elements of his message had any particular significance. But unbeknownst to Bob, but known to God, God brought Joel Hernandez across the country to be with us last week, right? Now, when, when Bob talked about doors, it brought something to mind for Joel. He remembered being in this building years ago, like 2003 or four. Bob brought uh, Hugh Blevins' name up. Hugh Blevins was involved in this incident that, that Joel remembered. And so Joel gets up, and you could see, I, unfortunately, I watched it on the video. He was emotional, right? He's sharing a testimony of God's goodness and what the Lord did in this building because of some weird cubbyhole, because of the way Hugh came to him. God had done something amazing back then, and it just popped up last week. Nobody walked into this building thinking that we're going to have that moment, right? We didn't know that. God knew it. God wanted to give that to us. His spirit was here last week. His spirit was here leading our worship last week. You can see it. This happens all the time. Anyway, I'm pretty passionate about this. Yes, he is here in our worship. Amen. Okay, that was spirit. We're going to go to the truth part. This, one's going to, this part's going to go a little faster. Um, I'm not going to try to go in... Tom's footsteps, he did an excellent exegesis of these passages, but I am going to kind of make some comments on things that, to me, jump out about how we do uh, church. 
And these rules and guidelines are important. And here's a little mental picture for you. If you live in Colorado and you dig hummingbirds, what do you do? You, there's two things you can do, right? You can go the hard route. You can plant the kind of flowers that the hummingbirds like around your house, right? And then they come and you get to enjoy them. Or you can kind of be lazy and you can buy one of those red things that you pour the sugar water in. Either way, you're creating conditions, right? And when the conditions are right, it supports this ecosystem of hummingbirds and then they come hang out with you. The structure of our service, the way we apply the scriptures to this worship service is, is it helps us create the conditions. It works with the Spirit. It gives him flexibility and things that he can do among us week by week as we come to worship. So that's kind of my mental image there. But here are some somewhat disconnected thoughts. I'm going to click down through these verses for the rest of the chapter and just give you some, some additional things to think about. So what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. The point I want to bring out here is about when you assemble. And that's like, well, why do you care about that, right? That's not the flashy part of that verse. Why are we talking about when you assemble? Well, it's actually really important for us as a body and for us as elders because we have to decide these rules that we're being given, when do they apply, right? We can't ignore them because we believe the Bible is true and we believe the Lord wants us to apply his word to the best of our ability. But what does that mean? Is it any time two or three people from CBC are together, we apply all the rules, is it any time we're all in the building, we apply those rules? And what the elders determined long ago at the beginning was that these apply to our worship service, our remembrance service. So from 9.45 to 10.45, roundabout, we apply these rules. The rest of body life is not like this. So the, these things have to sort of be defined. We don't want to be overly expansive in when we apply these things but we also don't want to miss the point of it as well. So that's the, the part about when we assemble. And so when we say, as it's going to come up in a few more verses, that women should be silent in the church, it's that one hour on Sunday that we apply that to. Again, we, don't, we may not even like these restrictions, but we are faithfully trying, we're trying to faithfully follow the scriptures. So these apply to that, that one hour of our worship service on Sunday mornings. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it, would be, it should be by two or three at the most, and each in turn, that, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Um, you know, every now and then, it seems like every maybe four or five years, you know, we'll be, the elders will be together and somebody will make some kind of comment about somebody getting up and speaking in tongues, right? I've never seen it here, not in this church. Uh, it could happen, and we kind of have this thought about, okay, what would you do, right? Now, we, we can't forbid it. That comes up later in this text, but what we would do is we would seek to apply these instructions. So I would imagine, you know, we probably pick on the, the newest elder, so Lenny, that would be Lenny. <laughs> That's what we do. Robert's off the hook for now. Um, but somebody would get up and ask, is there an interpreter here? And if there's no interpreter, we would say, we've got to disregard what just happened and move on with the service, and then we'd probably visit with that person afterwards and try to figure out what's going on. But these rules give us some structure to manage that meeting, right? These are important things. Okay, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. I think I neglected to say this, but in this context, prophecy and prophets are not talking about the guys with long beards that uh, speak judgment and tell the future what God's going to do. These are gifts that are speaking the will of God, ideally from the scripture, encouraging people to follow the scriptures. This is not, you know, telling the future. So you have to kind of reduce your, your uh, expectation for what this means about prophecy. It's not one of those really fantastic things we're talking about. We're talking about what our men do in here every Sunday. So uh, the thought here is let two or three speak. You know, we limit uh, the length of the meeting. If, it, if we don't make some limits, if we don't schedule it and have certain things happening at certain times, it gets out of control, it gets unwieldy, so we have to do that. And we also pass judgment. Now that's, you know, this term, this word keeps popping up these days. Oh, that seems kind of judgy, right? So it's got a negative connotation. I don't think that's the point here. I think the point here is we should think about the content in this meeting right? Is this biblical? Are they speaking uh, truth according to the scriptures? And 
A lot of correction can be very mild and person to person, and, but that's the idea behind this. We do judge what happens in that meeting. Um, and then this next one, the spirit, I'm just going to say the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Tom pointed this out very well. We're not talking about two people kind of um, interacting together to curb somebody else's um, participation in the meeting. It's basically saying, if you're going to get up and use a prophetic gift in this meeting, and again, not telling the future, that gift is subject to your spirit. So you don't have the room to say, there was nothing I could do. I had to get up. I know it was too late. I know it was off topic. That just doesn't fly, right? These, these guidelines are there for a reason so that the spirit can work. He doesn't work by breaking his own guidelines, if that makes sense. Okay. And then, this is interesting at the end, all the churches of the saints. There was a time when everybody did this. You ever think about that? Not many people do this these days, but there was a time when this was the practice for all the churches. Okay, the section about women being silent, um, I'm not going to go through that and try to defend it. Tom did a good job of that. But what I do want to say to you is I have had the occasion in speaking correction to a brother about how he was participating in the worship service to use you ladies as an example. He was basically saying he can't follow these instructions. I said, brother, really? Have you, have you met our ladies? Have you watched our women worshiping with us on Sundays? Do they follow the instructions for them in this passage? And he, he had to admit, yes, they do. I said, do they ever mess up? Do they ever say, I just can't do this? No. No, they don't. You women are godly. We are asking something of you that is deeply countercultural. And it's personal. But you, you give this, this sacrifice of worship every week. Worshiping with us, participating with us, but not leading. That is not lost on us, and it's not lost on your Lord. It's a beautiful example. It really is. So, well done, sisters. Here, Paul doesn't wrap his apostolic authority around him. He actually kicks it up a notch, and he says, these instructions that I've just finished giving you, these aren't just coming from me in my office as an apostle. These are the Lord's commands. I, I, what do you do with that? It doesn't get any higher than that. You know, the, it, it's appealed all the way up to the, the Supreme Court, as it were, in the example. So these are very important guidelines. And then at the end here... Um, Brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. And I wish we could, but we can't. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So this is the, the summing up and the takeaways that we've got to temper our participation in that worship service by what is edifying to the body. We defer to one another. We don't do things that are off topic. We don't, we don't create problems. And that's hard. I mean, we heard John talking about it this morning. John's exactly right. Every one of us that opens that service, we feel the same way that John does when he described that. It is a weighty thing to open and to set a theme. And we're going to mess it up. And every meeting's not great. Right? I've got to say that at some point in this message. But the weird thing to me is sometimes the meeting will be over and I'll think, uh, that wasn't great. You know, that was not our best. And I'll talk to one of you, and sometimes it's my mom, and I'll hear, wasn't that a wonderful worship service? And so it's going to hit your ear and your heart differently than it hits somebody else's. There's not a consistency there, right? But some days I just don't, I just don't feel it, and you do. That's the Holy Spirit working too. That's real. That's real. It doesn't mean somebody's wrong. It just means the Holy Spirit had something different he needed to do that day with somebody else. And so we should bear with one another with that in mind. Okay, the meeting is unplanned. We already talked about that, but that doesn't mean it's unregulated, right? It can be unplanned and yet have a structure. And that's why we give these instructions every week. Please remember, remember the times that we're supposed to do this. Oh, don't, don't let it run long. Let's do things in an orderly way. That doesn't mean it's not spirit-led. It means it's spirit-cultivated really important for us to do this. And men, when you participate, take this to heart. You deciding not to get up, or you modifying what you're doing, or maybe you prepared something during the week. That's great. We love that. But it doesn't fit the theme. Hold it. 
slip it in your Bible, bring it back next week, bring it back six weeks, bring it back six months until it fits the theme, and then you will be the thing that the Lord brings to make that meeting spirit-led and wonderful. So these are the kinds of examples that we have. Okay, human management of the meeting. I'm Sorry, I had to put this in there. Um, there is some maintenance that is necessary. This is really a kind of a, a firm point in my heart. Um, it's not all about the spirit. We have a role in it too. You have a role. The elders have a role. And it's supported in scripture. I'm not going to go to those verses, but 14.29 and 14.32 and 33 basically say, hey, there's some management here that's needed. So this isn't described in scripture as the elder's responsibility, but I'll tell you that these elders at this church feel an outsized responsibility to help manage the, the meeting of the church so that it is edifying to you. So we feel the weight of responsibility. We talk about this a lot. We talk about it when we meet, like, you know, what happened on Sunday. We talk about participation. We talk about who we want to hear more from. There are some of you guys that need to be up a lot more. Some of you guys probably need to be up less. But we talk about these things, and we interact with you. You probably don't see a lot of that unless we're interacting with you. But we do this because this is really an important part of our role. So types of input we give to our men. And I'm, I'm going to kind of peel this back, and just so everybody kind of sees this, I think it might be an encouragement to you. You know, we talk about frequency of participation. Brother, you're getting up too often. Let's talk about that. Brother, where have you been? We need to hear from you. If we are being led through diversity, that means we need all the voices, right? We need you to participate. You may be the person that some young man or boy or young girl or young woman sits in this meeting. They may need to hear you, right? I gave you examples of people that spoke to me as a teenager. You may be the person that somebody in this meeting is going to lock onto and be edified by, and they're gonna get exhortation from you. Don't be silent. Length of participation. You're talking too long, or you're getting up too late in the meeting, and it's extending, and it's messing up Sunday school, and it's taking time away from prayer, whatever it is. Um, we talk about those things. Or you're contributing really well. We like what you did, but you did it at the wrong time. You know, don't get up in the beginning and give a prayer request, right? That comes in the prayer and sharing time. We have a structure and an order for these things. Or being off topic, I already kind of hammered that one, but that's one that's really important because you may have the best thing to say, and it may be great, but if it's off topic, it'll be a left-hand turn in that meeting. And, it, and we won't have the connections being made by the Holy Spirit with the men that are getting up. So I think that one is, is something that we've, we've all done that. I've done it. In fact, I've probably done all these things. Um, we're, none of us do this perfectly. Um, but that's one to be aware of. And then wrong doctrine or wrong interpretation, we don't get that a lot. If it's something mild, like it's a slip of the tongue, you probably overlook it. Maybe a couple of you guys talk about it. If it's something seriously doctrinally wrong, you know, the elders are going to go talk to that guy. And if it's really bad, we might actually have to get up in the meeting and say something. We don't like doing that. Uh, we like to let love cover it. But if it's going to cause con doctrinal confusion in the body, we will address it in the time. That has to be done. So those are some management things that happen. And if we are talking to you, brothers, uh, our input's really intended to love you and to encourage you, to help you do better. It's not meant to stifle you. That's a hard thing to receive, and that's one thing we always weigh. Is this going to turn a brother off and make him not participate? We don't want that. Okay, and sometimes we do place restrictions on men, and it, this is a hard thing to do, but it's probably worth saying. We, sometimes we have to say, brother, you just can't get up for a while, and, and we do those things to try to make it worshipful and edifying to the body. Okay. Well, I'm going to end on probably this slide. Where did this come from? Right? We see it in Acts chapter 2. It's a good biblical foundation there. What happened in the inner meantime? You know, we don't really see this in church history. If, you're, if you've, you may have never thought about that, this style of worship was in all the churches in the beginning, and then it went away. And now you show up at CBC and we're doing it. So, so what's the story there? If a newcomer asks me, why do you guys do this? I've got two answers. I've only got two. And I'll try to figure out who's asking me the question, and I'll use one of these answers. 
Answer A is we believe this is what the New Testament teaches about believer, teaches believers to do when they assemble together in the meeting of the church. And this comes from 1 Corinthians 14. Let's go to the text. That's one of my answers. And if somebody comes in with no background, that's what I say. And Lawrence, that's what I started saying to you when you guys visited the first time. Now, I figured out that Lawrence wasn't just a guy, right? And so I quickly switched into a different answer, right? And here's my answer B. Answer B is it's a Plymouth Brethren or PB style of worship. CBC has PB roots as a church plant, a believer's chapel, and we're technically an assembly, even though many here may not think about CBC in those terms. And I've always wanted to do this. Today is my day. I'm excited. I want you to raise your hand if you have a brethren background or you really know what that means. If you're kind of on the fence, you don't really know, keep your hand down. Okay. That's about what I expected. That's probably a third, maybe 40% of the body actually knows what that means. It's a weird thing about us, but this is a great history. These PB roots are wonderful, and I wish I had another hour. I would do another hour just on that. Um, but this is where it came from. It's kind of like the Reformation, right? The, the doctrines of grace were lost for a time by the church in the West. The Reformation came around, and they were, Martin Luther kicked this thing off, and they were recaptured and redeployed within the church to reform it. This style of worship was predominant in the early church. It was lost because of hierarchy and clericalism and uh, illiteracy probably had a, a part in that. And it had to come back at some point, and it did. It came back, and I'm going to show, I'm sorry, I can't help but do this. I like this. So this Plymouth Brethren thing, it popped up in a four-year period between 1829 and 1833 in four different places, three in England, one in Ireland. And those, those guys there at the right, uh, that's John Nelson Darby at the top, uh, Anthony Norris Groves, you've got George Mueller, and you've got Robert Chapman. I don't know how many of you know all four of those guys. Every one of them are really interesting. They were young men. They were told that they shouldn't worship to, together with other friends that were believers that weren't in their denomination. This was a period of, of very strong denominationalism, specifically in England, where they had literally laws about which denominations were acceptable for members of parliament to worship in, right? Big deal back then, way more than what we do today. These guys were told, don't worship with those guys. They're not Methodists. They're not from the Church of England. You can't do that. And don't ever think about taking communion together. You can't do that because not only can you not worship with those guys that are Mennonites, you got to have a priest there. you got to have a cleric there if you're going to do the Lord's table. That's not just for anyone. And so these rebellious young men, they didn't look like that. They were in their 20s, right? Because <laughs> that's what guys in their 20s do, right? You don't do it when you look like that. But these guys said, wait a minute. This is my brother. I love this guy. Why can't I not worship with him? And they went to the scriptures. And they said, do we see this in the scriptures? Is this what the scriptures say? And they're like, no, that's not what the scriptures say. And in fact, the scriptures say a whole lot more. And they started reclaiming New Testament principles for the church. So from these four locations, it spread around the world and has had an outsized impact on the church globally. It's been amazing. And it's a part of our history that I just wish we, we covered more and knew more about. So some of the distinctives of these church, they self-identify as assemblies, right? But don't ever call them a denomination. I, I could tell you a story about an argue, a three-year argument with the IRS about whether or not the assemblies are a denomination. Short story, we won. The IRS just gave up because it was crazy. Um, the assemblies are low church, not high church. High church, you've got robes. You carry a cross in. You've got a lot of liturgy and creeds. Not dissing those guys, we're the opposite, right? The assemblies go the other direction on all that kind of stuff. Um, big emphasis on lay leadership and lay service. You see that. Um, so we believe in the priesthood of all believers. That has implications to the way we do church. Plurality of leadership. We've got lay elders that govern this body as a group. We don't have a pastor. You know, you see Tom most often up here in the pulpit. He's one of the elders. So... And he, he would have it no other way. Bob did the same thing before him. Weekly observance of the Lord's table. Very important, very big distinctive, and a lot of churches don't do that to their detriment, in my opinion. Open worship service. Very big distinctive of the assemblies. 
emphasis and teaching on biblical exposition and adherence and practice. You know, these are the people that really try to figure out what does the scripture say and teach it and do it. Missions-minded doesn't necessarily go with the other things I just said. The beginning of the, the faith missions movement was driven largely by the brethren. So they were sending, Anthony Norris Groves, one of those guys I showed you, he went to Baghdad in 1840 on a mission trip. Nobody was doing that stuff. And then he went to India, right? I mean, it's amazing what these men did. Strong camp ministries, that's kind of a funny thing about it, not really into founding schools, not, not K-12 schools, not colleges or seminaries. Emmaus Bible College is about one of the only ones that, that really is brethren connected. And then the, one of the things that's also interesting, you could do a message just on this, the, the assemblies are defined by a common ecclesiology. It's how they do church. It's not defined by a hierarchy where we're all sort of stuck together in an organization with a national assembly and a bishop or whatever. And we're also not defined by common doctrine, although there is a lot of common doctrine. These are Bible-believing churches. We are very um, reform theology-minded here. Not everybody, but that's kind of generally where this body is. If you go to the southeastern part of the U.S., you will find assemblies that are very Arminian. Who knew? You know, very interesting thing. Um, and then a couple things, I'm going to put them in the, the negative category there at the bottom, and I weighted it way towards the positive, so you know where my heart is. But countercultural, sometimes to a fault, sometimes unnecessarily countercultural, right? If the scriptures say, do something that's against the culture, great. But if we're just kind of doing it because we're stuck, that's not okay. And assemblies oftentimes will kind of fall into that. Uh, and also, I, I got to admit it, there's a history of division there. And when people really place a high standard on truth, sometimes you fall into this. Um, on your UVerse app, you will find a Bible on there that's the Darby version. So John Nelson Darby, he has, there's a version. You can get it for free on UVerse. He, he was a pretty divisive dude back in the history. You know, he did some neat things, some good things, but he, it seemed like he kind of embedded in the DNA of brethrenism some of the division where, hey, I don't agree with those folks. We have to denounce them. That has kind of petered out, I think, over time. It still pops up. It's regrettable, but that's, that's part of our DNA as well. Okay, I promised you some hot sports takes, and I know I'm at the end. Um, I heard somebody's buzzer go. That was probably deliberate, whoever did that. Um, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not going to comment on these. I'm just going to read them to you. And these are just from me. I don't know if the other elders would, would agree with these things or not. They might. One, an open meeting that is well-balanced and well-managed is a rare and beautiful form of worship. It may be the pinnacle of Christian worship for the local body. And I would argue it is the form of worship that is most true to the New Testament. We should treasure it. Not as an idol, but we should treasure what we do because it's important and it's wonderful and it's dare I say, unique. <laughs> That's a word I don't use very often. Number two, I know of no better way to grow spiritually strong men than to take boys and show them frequent examples of regular guys who know the scriptures, love Jesus, and publicly lead in worship. And young girls need to see these same examples just as much. I don't know how to replicate that. It's really important. Number three, the open meeting is easier to maintain than to fix. And it's easier to fix than to start or to restart. So the point behind this is don't let it go to seed, right? It needs our care. It needs our management, our maintenance. It needs the Holy Spirit. It needs us to pray for that. And then this last thing is really not for you. Um, I know elders at other assemblies. I sit on a board that's all about the assemblies. And... There may be some guys that actually listen to this from other assemblies, and this message is, is for them. If you have a tradition of an open meeting, please, brothers, know that it is worth fighting for. It is worth fighting for. And, and what it needs, if you're still doing it, whether it's going well or it's not going well, teach it and promote it. People understanding the open meeting will generate its own support and maintenance. You need to lean in with your body and do this together with them. Don't pull away. Second thing, manage it to protect it. Management is hard. Management is sometimes uncomfortable. We don't like managing it, right? Nobody likes these kinds of conversations. But you manage it so that it continues to do well because quality is an essential item for long-term health and support. 
if the meeting goes badly and everybody's like, boy, that's a beating every week, you're not going to be doing it very long and you're going to miss out on something important. Third, preserve it for the future generations. This is part of our heritage. You want to pass it down. Don't let your generation be the one that gave up on it, let it go, and messed it up. And then the last one, I actually talked to an elder um, a week ago that was in this situation. It may, you may have given up on it already. It may be in your history, but you're not doing it now. That's okay. Resuscitate it. It's not too late to blow on the coals, fan the flames a little bit, and bring it back. And maybe, just maybe when you bring it back, you can do it in a more thoughtful way. Maybe you can garner more support from your congregation and make it work. It's a wonderful thing, and we're, we're very blessed to have this heritage. And I'm going to close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your loving kindness towards us. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for men and women who have taken your scriptures to heart and have tried to apply them faithfully and given us traditions that are from your word and are good for us. And Father, most of all, I want to thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us, who brings good things to us through one another, through spiritual gifts, through contributions in worship. May he ever be here with us, blessing us and helping us to honor the Lord Jesus in our worship. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.